0: Good evening, everyone. This is Mr. Boveo. We are continuing on with C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew from the Chronicles of Narnia series. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 9. The Founding of Narnia. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting, than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass. Soon, there were other things besides grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Diggory did not know what they were until one began coming up quite close to him. It was a little spiky thing that threw out dozens of arms and covered these arms with green and grew larger at a rate of about an inch every two seconds. There were dozens of these things all around him now. When they were nearly as tall as himself, he saw what they were. "'Trees!' he exclaimed. The nuisance of it, as Polly said afterwards, was that you weren't left in peace to watch at all. Just as Diggory said trees, he had to jump because Uncle Andrew had sidled up to him again and was just going to pick his pocket.' it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have done uncle andrew much good if he had succeeded for he was aiming at the right-hand pocket because he still thought the green rings were homeward rings but of course Diggory didn't want to lose either stop cried the witch stand back no further back if anyone goes within 10 paces of either of the children i will knock out his brains she was posing her hand in her hand the iron bar that she had torn off the lamppost ready to throw it somehow no one doubted that she would be a very good shot so she said you would steal back to your own world with the boy and leave me here uncle andrew's temper at last got the better of him of his fears yes ma'am i would he said Most undoubtedly I would. I should be perfectly in my rights. I have been most shamefully, most abominably treated. I have done my best to show you such civilities as were in my power. And what has been my reward? You have robbed, I must repeat the word robbed, a highly respectable jeweler. You have insisted on my entertaining you to an exceedingly expensive Expensive, not to say ostentatious lunch, though I was obliged to pawn my watch and chain in order to do so, and let me tell you, ma'am, that none of my family have been in the habit of frequenting pawn shops except my cousin Edward, and he was in the yeomanary. During that indigestible meal, I'm feeling the worst for it at this very moment, your behavior in conversation attracted the unfavorable attention of everyone present. I feel I have been publicly disgraced. I shall never be able to show my face in that restaurant again. You have assaulted the police. You have stolen. Oh, stow it, Governor. Do stow it, said the cabby, Watching and listening to the thing at present, not talking. There was certainly pl- plenty to watch and to listen to. The tree, which Diggory had noticed, was now a full-grown beech, whose branches swayed gently above his head. They stood on cool green grass, sprinkled with daisies and buttercups. A little way off, along the river bank, willows were growing. On the other side, tangles of flowering currant, lilac, wild rose, and rhododendron closed them in. The horse was tearing up delicious mouthfuls of new grass. All this time, the lion's song and his stately prowl to and fro, backward and forward, was going on. What was rather alarming was that at each turn, he came a little nearer. Polly was finding that song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up on a ridge about a hundred yards away, she felt that she were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes, which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked round, you saw, you saw them. This was no exception. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid, but Diggory and the cabbie could not help feeling a bit nervous as each turn of the lion's walk brought him nearer. As for Uncle Andrew, his teeth were chattering, but his knees were shaking so that he could not run away. Suddenly, the witch stepped boldly out toward the lion. It was coming on, always singing with a slow, heavy pace. It was only 12 yards away. She raised her arm and flung the iron bar straight at its head. Nobody, least of all Jadis, could have missed at that range. The bar struck the lion fair between his eyes. It glanced off and fell with a thud in the grass. The lion came on. Its walk was neither slower nor faster than before. You could not tell whether it even knew it had been hit. Though its soft pads made no noise, you could feel the earth shake beneath their weight. The witch shrieked and ran. In a few moments, she was out of sight among the trees. Uncle Andrew turned to do likewise, tripped over a root, and fell flat on his face in a little brook that ran down to join the river. The children could not move. The lion paid no attention to them. Its huge red mouth was open, but open in song, not in snarl. It passed by them so close that they could have touched its mane. They were terribly afraid it would turn and look at them, yet in some weird way they wished it would. But for all the notice it took of them, they might just as well have been invisible and unsmellable. When it had missed them and had gone a few paces further, it turned past them again and continued its march eastward. Uncle Andrew, coughing and spluttering, picked himself up. Now, Diggory, he said, we've got to rid of that we've got rid of that woman and that and the brute of a lion is gone. Give me your hand and put your ring at, put your ring at once. Put on your ring at once. Keep off, said Diggory, backing away from him. Keep clear of him, Polly. Come over here beside me. Now I warn you, Uncle Andrew, don't come one step nearer or will vanish. "'Do what you're told this minute, sir,' said Uncle Andrew. "'You're an extremely disobedient, ill-behaved little boy.' "'No fear,' said Diggory. "'We want to stay and see what happens. "'I thought you wanted to know about other worlds. "'Don't you like it now you're here?' "'Like it!' exclaimed Uncle Andrew. "'Just look at the state I'm in!' "'And it was my best coat and waistcoat, too,' He certainly was a dreadful sight by now, for, of course, the more dressed up you were to begin with, the worse you looked after you crawled out of a smashed, handsome cab and fallen into a muddy brook. I'm not saying, he added, that this is not a most interesting thing. If I were a younger man, now, perhaps I could get some lively young fellows to come here first. One of those big game hunters something might be made of this country the climate is delightful i never felt such air i believe it would have done me good if if circumstances had been more favorable if only we had had a gun guns be blown said cabby i think i'll go and see if i can give strawberry a rub down that horse has more sense than some humans as i could mention he walked back to strawberry and began making the hissing sound hissing noises that grooms make "'You still think that lion could be killed by a gun?' asked Diggory. "'He didn't mind the iron bar much.' "'With all her faults,' said Uncle Andrew. "'That's a plucky gel, my boy.' "'It was a spirited thing to do.' "'He rubbed his hands and cracked his knuckles, "'as if he were once more forgetting how the witch frightened him "'whenever she was really there. "'It was a wicked thing to do,' said Polly. What harm had he done to her? Hello, what's that? said Diggory. He had darted forward to examine something only a few yards away. I say, Polly, he called back, do come and look. Uncle Andrew came with her, not because he wanted to see, but because he wanted to keep close to the children. There might be a chance of stealing their rings. But when he saw what Diggory was looking at, even he began to take an interest. It was a perfect little model of a lamp post, about three feet high, but lengthening and thickening in proportion, as they watched it, in fact, growing just as the trees had grown. It's alive, too. I mean, it's lit, said Diggory. And so it was, though, of course, the brightness of the sun made the little flame in the lantern hard to see unless your shadow fell on it. Remarkable, most remarkable, muttered Uncle Andrew. Even I never dreamed of magic like this. We're in a world where everything, even a lamppost, comes to life and grows. Now I wonder what sort of seed a lamppost grows from. Don't you see it? said Diggory. This is where the the bar fell. The bar she tore off the lamppost at home. It sank into the ground, and now it's coming up as a young lamppost, but not as not so very young now. It was as tall as Diggory while he said this. That's it, stupendous, stupendous, said Uncle Andrew, rubbing his hands harder than ever. ho! Oh, they laugh at my magic. That fool of a sister of mine thinks I'm a lunatic. I wonder what they'll say now. I have discovered a world where everything is bursting with life and growth. Columbus. Now they'll talk about Columbus. But what was America to this? The commercial possibilities of the country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them. And up they come as a brand new railway engine, battleships, anything you please. They'll cost nothing. And I can sell them full price in England. I shall be a millionaire, and then the climate—I feel years younger already. I can run it as a health resort, a good sanatorium. Here might be worth twenty thousand a year. Of course, I shall make—I shall have to let a few people into the secret. The first thing is to get the brute—that brute—shot. You're just like the witch said, Polly. All you think of is killing things. And then as regards to one, and then as regard then as regards oneself, Uncle Andrew, continuing in a happy dream, there's no knowing how long I might live if I settle here, and that's a big consideration when a fellow has turned sixty. I shouldn't be surprised if I never grow grew a day older in this country. Stupendous the land of youth. Oh cried Diggory. The land of youth do you think it really is? For, of course, he remembered what Aunt Letty had said to the lady who brought the grapes. And that sweet hope rushed back upon him. Uncle Andrew, he said, do you think there's anything here that would cure mother? What are you talking about? said Uncle Andrew. This isn't a chemist shop. But as I was saying, you don't care two pence about her, said Diggory savagely. I thought you might, after all, she's your sister, as well as my mother, well no matter. I'm jolly well going to ask the lion himself if he can help me. And he turned and walked briskly away. Polly waited for a moment and then went after him. Here, stop, come back. The boy's gone bad, said Uncle Andrew. He followed the children at a cautious distance behind, for he didn't want to get too far away from the green rings and too near the lion. In a few minutes, Diggory, came to the edge of the wood, and there he stopped. The lion was singing still. But now the song had once more changed. It was more like what we should call a tune, but it was also far wilder. It made you want to run and jump and climb. It made you want to shout. It made you want to rush at other people and either hug them or fight them. It made Diggory hot and red in the face. It had some effect on Uncle Andrew. For Diggory could hear him saying, "A spirited gel sir. It's a pity about her temper, but a dem fine woman all the same. A dem fine woman." But what the song did to the two humans was nothing compared to what it was doing to the country. Can you imagine a stench, a stretch of grassy land bubbling like a like water in a pot? That is really the best description of what was happening. In all directions, it was swelling into humps. They were of very different sizes, some no bigger than molehills, some as big as wheelbarrows, two the size of cottages, and the humps moved and swelled till they burst, and then crumbled earth poured out of them, and from each hump there came out an animal. The moles came out, just as you might see a mole come out in England. The dogs came out, barking the moment their heads were free and struggling, as you've seen them do when they are getting through a narrow hole in the hedge. The stags were the weirdest to watch, for, of course, the antlers came up a long time before the rest of them. So as far as Diggory thought, they were trees. The frogs, who all came up near the river, went straight into it with a plop, plop, and a loud croaking. The panthers, leopards, and the things of that sort sat down at once to wash the loose earth off their hindquarters and then stood up against the trees to sharpen their front claws. Showers of birds came out of the trees. Butterflies fluttered. Bees got to work on the flowers as if they hadn't a second to lose. But the greatest moment of all was when the biggest hump broke like a earth, small earthquake, and out came the sloping back, the large, wise head, and the four baggy trouser legs of an elephant. And now you could hardly hear the song of the lion. There was so much cawing, cooing, crowing, braying, neighing, baying, barking, lowing, lowing, bleeding, and trumpeting. But though diggory could no longer hear the lion he could see it and it was so big and so bright that he could not take his eyes off it the other animals did not appear to be afraid of it indeed at that very moment diggory heard the sounds of hooves from behind a second later the old ho- cab horse trotted past him and joined the other beasts the air had apparently suited him as well As it had suited Uncle Andrew, he had no longer looked like the poor old slave he had been in London. He was picking up his feet and holding his head erect. And now, for the first time, the lion was quiet, quite silent. He was going to and fro among the animals, and every now and then he would go up to two of them, always two at a time, and touch their noses with his. He would touch two beavers among all the beavers, two leopards, among all the leopards, leopards, one stag and one deer, among all the deer, and leave the rest. Some sort of animals he passed over altogether, but the pairs which he had touched instantly left their own kinds and followed him. At last he stood still, and all the creatures whom he had touched came and stood in a wide circle around him. The others whom he had not touched, began to wander away. Their noises faded gradually into the distance. The chosen beasts who remained were now utterly silent, all with their eyes fixed intently upon the lion. The cat-like ones gave an occasional twitch of the tail, but otherwise, all were still. For the first time that day, there was complete silence except for the noise of running water. Diggory's heart beating wildly, he knew something very solemn was going to be done. He had not forgotten about his mother, but he knew jolly well that, even for her, he couldn't interrupt a thing like this. The lions, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he were was going to burn them up with his mere stare, and gradually a change came over them. The smaller ones, the rabbits, moles, and such like, grew a good deal larger. The very big ones, you noticed it most with the elephants, grew a little smaller. Many animals sat up on their hind legs. Most put up their heads on one side, as if they were trying hard to understand. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. Far overhead, from beyond the veil of blue sky, which hid them, the stars sang again. A pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. And that was chapter nine from C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more chapters from this book.